0: Hi, church. How you doing? You doing okay? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get to the sermon in a little bit. <laughs> Don't worry. Like, Oh, no. A little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get there in a little bit, uh, and, and, and we're going to talk about freedom, and, and I'm going to greet the fellows at the prison here, here in a little bit. But I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you because several people are new. They're brand new, and, and I wanted to talk to you about what you've heard regarding youth camp. Now I'm, I'm curious. Did anybody in here, anyway, have you been to youth camp before? Not ours, but a summer youth camp that you went to, some sort of church camp. Okay, so a few, a few of you have. Uh, here's. Let me tell you about this. Uh, camps become a a catalytic moment for teenagers. Uh, if you don't know this and aren't aware of this, um, you can make decisions as a teenager that affect the rest of your life. Us as parents are like trying to get that into our kids. Like, please, right? So, so we're, we know that. The teenage years are critical and also difficult. So, we as a church believe with all of our hearts that we should be actively involved in the lives of students, teenagers. In fact, that we should not just say, hey, yeah, be a part of the church, don't smell, don't break anything. You know, that kind of thing, is that we should actually value teenagers. We do. As a church, we value teenagers like crazy. If you're somewhere in middle school and high school, I hope you feel super welcome. This isn't just mom and dad's or aunt and uncle's or grandma and grandpa's church. This is your church, and we, we think you're super important, and so we want to talk about something. We have camp coming up in the summer, and we always have camp, and, and, and it's always an awesome moment, but for many families, when it comes to youth camp, the price tag comes across, and you're like, I can't go. I can't send my teenager or my teenagers, and you're thinking, I can't. And so here's what we've done as a church. We don't let our teenagers raise money for camp. Now, I, like probably more so than anybody else, want our teenagers selling donuts and cookie dough. Like, real bad. Uh, and, and, and fundraising is not bad. Don't take this too far. I don't think fundraising is bad, but in this church... We would rather teenagers, if they're going to go to basketball camp or band camp or some other camp, raise money. But if you're going to go for a week-long intensive, learn about Jesus, we're going to get you there no matter what it takes. And so here's what we do. Here's our system. We don't fundraise. We just open it up to the church that if you can and are willing to do such thing, help a teenager get to camp, all you do is you can provide a scholarship a portion of a scholarship, 10 bucks, uh, 500 bucks, 5,000 bucks if you want, to help get teenagers to camp. And what we will guarantee every teenager, even if it comes out of our budget, which we've planned to do that if necessary, we will get every teenager that registers for camp to camp. No, no pushing anybody away because of money. And, and camp's expensive, so that's our buy-in to getting students to camp because it's that important. So when you hear about camp, don't be like, well, I don't have a teenager, praise the Lord. I don't have a teenager. No, no. no, I don't care if you have a teenager or not. I think you and I need to help get teens to camp. And so if you can and are willing to do so, you can see on the app when you give online, you can go out to the lobby and, and, and check with the booth and say, hey, I want to help a student get to camp. If you are sending a kid to camp, you're like, I can't afford it, stop that excuse. We are family here. And we will walk with you. There's a scholarship form you fill out, and we will get your teen to camp. If you can pay 50 bucks of the, the fee, fine. If not, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it. That's what we do. We believe in teenagers enough to put our money in it, okay? I just wanted to, until so everyone knows this. Do we all understand? You will not be seeing cookie dough or donuts out there for sale at all. Okay. What I just told you is really good, Okay. Teenagers are now they're great, so we get them to camp. It's awesome, it's important. If you want to know more about camp, what it's like, if you're like, I've never sent my kid off to camp, I mean, do they come back? How's that work? Uh, just go out to the booth, they'll talk to you through the whole process of what it is and what it's about. And I guarantee you, this is, is that if you're a parent of a teenager, uh, you'll be glad that they went, they'll be glad you went. Everyone wins, but okay, so let's do this, fellas at RCMU. We're glad you're listening in. Uh, I am so, uh, I I hear about the the freeway books you're going through, we're going through the freeway books, we're all one church, multiple occasions, this is going awesome, we're going to walk through this in a different way today, we've been talking about how to get free, how to get free, how to get free, today is how to live out freedom, like how to actually, after you've claimed it and locked in, like I am free, I am forgiven, I'm no longer in bondage to unforgiveness, I'm not, I'm not dealing with my shame and regret, like okay David, Now what? How do I do this? How do I not lose my freedom? So that's what we're going to talk about. And there's a great part of the Bible. I'm going to start off there. This is in Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now sometimes we're like yoke. We're talking about eggs. We're talking about oxen. We, so in and, and the message, it says this. Galatians 5, one, same verse. Christ has set us free to live a free life, so take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. Don't go back into slavery. And the, one of the classic questions and conversations I have as a pastor is rooted in insecurity. Going, David, how do I know for sure that I'm gonna to go to heaven. And I always, I'll ask you back, well, do you believe that Jesus died for you, rose from the grave for you, and that your sins are forgiven? And, and most you who have asked me that question say, well, yeah, I was like, well, you don't need to be insecure about what happens and, and, and the freedom that you walk in, but most of us do that. I can tell you why. It's because most of us see our behavior as what got us in trouble in the first place, so we think it's our behavior that's gonna get us free again. And we, we, we leverage everything on behavior. And so many of us will say, yeah, I wrote on the wall, David, I declared that I'm free, and then this last week happened, and I screwed up. And you wonder, in your head, you don't mean, maybe not tell anybody this. And you wonder, am I still, like, good with God? Is, it, is he still like me? Does he still, am I still free and many of us, we remember, some of you went to youth camp, and you gave your life to Jesus. you like, yes, I love God. And then you lived your teenage years and your college years, and, and you're like, what happened? And you wonder, if you're free, you wonder, am, am I still good with God? And many of us live in insecurity because it's, it's behavior-driven. So we think in order to get back in good graces with God, in order to be free again, we got to be good again. And the, And the better you are, you think, the more... God's like, yeah, you're free again because you've been really good this week. Good job, David. Uh, It doesn't work that way. I can show you a real-life example. I'll I'll, I'll refer to my kids. I have three kids. Katie gets all the credit. So I've got a 2-year-old, a 6-year-old, and an 11-year-old. Don't ask me why. It's a long story for another time. Uh, But there are the two oldest kids. I know this will shock you because, you know, I'm a pastor, but our kids, our, our kids get in trouble. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. I know, you're like, what? Yeah, uh, and they get in trouble, they'll do something they're not supposed to, they'll say something they're not supposed to, they, they'll, they'll disobey in some way, and we have that conversation. And uh, as parents, we're like, hey, we'll talk to them. And the way we punish in our home right now, especially those two oldest ones right now, is we remove privileges. The reason was, is that's what I hated as a kid. And our kids hate it, when you remove a privilege. Like, hey, you know that TV thing you like? No more, say, see ya. Wave to it when you go buy it. And, and, we, and we remove privileges, right? Now, here's what's fascinating about our children. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've done this before. So we have that disciplined conversation. We talk about what they did wrong and, and what needs to change. And, and hey, as a consequence, we've got to remove these, well, privileges from you and blah, blah, blah. We have the whole conversation. And, and if about a few hours happen after that conversation, and if you have old enough kids, you know exactly what happens, is they go from disobedient children to like the dream child you dreamt of when you were like 22 years old and thinking, my kids are always gonna behave. And that begins to happen. Like our oldest son will come up and say, hey dad, you know, just past couple hours, I, I restained the deck, mowed the lawn, sealed the garage floor, and hey, I folded the laundry just the way you like it, the way you like the towels folded, I did that for you. It doesn't really happen, by the way. Uh, but they get super like compliant. You ever seen this? All of a sudden they turn from like rebellious mongers in the home and all of a sudden they're super compliant, whatever you need, whatever you want, I'm doing everything, this is awesome. And I can tell you because it's human nature, they're trying to get back into the good graces of you. They want to get back into good standing. They want to make sure that everything's okay, you see them for the way they want. It is a major act of manipulation if you don't know this. And, and you and I do the very same thing with God when you like yay! we have a great moment at church or in our in our group and we're studying where this is awesome and I love God and I'm forgiven and I've released this unforgiveness and we have this great moment but then we stray away we go away from God and in order to get back in good with God you and I think that it's what's behavior modification I got to behave my way back into God do you like me am I good am I free and that's not how it works In fact, it's deeper than that, more profound than that. Freedom is actually rooted in your identity. Freedom is in who you are, not what you do. But for most of us, if we're super open, think our freedom comes from what we do. And the better that we do, the better that we listen, the better that we operate, the better better our behavior is, the more free we feel, and we think they're directly related. When I'll tell you this, your freedom is rooted entirely in your identity, who you are. Not what you do. Now, what's really cool is this. See, there's a book, there's a portion of your Bible that actually talks about this. You're like, what? Yeah, I know. There's a part of your Bible that literally deals with you and I, but this is old time, but it relates to you and I, where where a guy wrote a letter to a church dealing with the same issue, how you and I, we claim freedom, we love freedom, like, yay, freedom. But then they strayed away from owning that freedom And we're insecure in what was going on. And this guy writes this letter to a church in Ephesus. And you're like, Ephesus, where is that, in Texas? Like, where's Ephesus? It was not in Texas, by the way. But there's a town called Ephesus, so in your Bible, it's called Ephesians. It's a letter to the church in Ephesus. People in Ephesus were called Ephesians. Wrote it to the Ephesians. There was a church there. Now, I've got to tell you about Ephesus so you and I understand what this letter means, who it is written to. Ephesus, if you want to somehow equate it to, David, I don't know what Ephesus is like. I understand that. Here's what it's like. It would be much similar to our New York City or Hong Kong, like an epicenter of commerce, tons of people. And in fact, at that time, they believed it was the fourth largest city in the world Now, now, there's a few places. Let me just help you understand this. There was the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had a footprint of the size of a football field, 127 60-foot marble pillars. Massive structure, just as a temple. There was the Ephesus Theater. This theater happened to seat 25,000 people. Massive place, where they would gather and have tons of stuff and activity. Uh, there's the Agora. The Agora was the entranceway, uh, a three, three space entry point that was our version of Amazon.com, okay? It's where, it's literally 100 yards by 100 yards, and it's where you went to get anything a, a gasket for your refrigerator or new shoes. It's just where they didn't have refrigerators, but, uh, or shoes probably, but th- they would gather this place. It was like the center of commerce. This place was huge. Ephesus was known all over. It's where you came to to do what you needed to do, whether work, get money in some way, buy things and whatever, or just have entertainment. It was the place. So if you know enough about life, you know that places the size of New York City have some bad things going on at the same time. And with so many people converging on Ephesus, so much stuff going on in this place, there was a lot of bad prostitution was rampant, uh, pickpockets everywhere, people getting robbed, getting swindled all the time in that 100-yard-by-100-yard commerce place. By many people, it was known as a very dangerous place. You'd get your money stolen all the time. You'd get cheated all the time. You'd oftentimes lose your spouse because they cheated on you. So, for so many people, bad. So a guy comes to town. His name's Paul. Paul comes to Ephesus to start a church, to literally get everyone there that he could possibly get in front of to tell them about this Jesus guy who died for them and has given them forgiveness, which gives them freedom. So Paul's going all over town preaching freedom. It's a very similar setting to what you and I are in right now. There's a guy preaching saying, You can't be free. Jesus did it for you, He loves you. It was incredible where prostitutes would give up prostitution, abandon that, get a normal job, and claim freedom from Jesus. Orphans who had no families would get included into a community of Christians and would get taken care of. Widows who had nothing and no one to support them would find support. People who used to steal, rob people, would give that up and start helping people, all in the name of freedom from Jesus. Jesus. Now here's the deal: is they would walk out of that old lifestyle and say freedom, yeah, this is awesome. But then Paul left. He spent about two years there. Uh, He left, and he got news eventually down the road that those people who had claimed freedom, who were like, "Yay, freedom! This is awesome!" were going back to their old lifestyles. They they would mess up and 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 find themselves. Some of the prostitutes found found themselves back in prostitution. Some of the folks who used to steal are stealing again, and so Paul writes them a letter and what I find so profound why I want you to see this and know this is this is he writes them a letter and I don't know how you would write the letter but some of us would be like I can't believe what I've heard you do and you and I might scold them at first and say hey I heard what you did and it's not good and you and I would oftentimes draft a letter writing back to them because of the behavior you and I would often talk about their behavior to them right that's just human nature that's what we would do Paul doesn't do that if you read the whole letter, the whole book of Ephesus, you would see that the first half has nothing to do with behavior modification. He talks to them. Listen, this is important. He talks to them about living in freedom. He talks to them about their identity. He engages in this, and here's why. Some of you are going to lose your minds on this already because you're thinking, wait a minute, is Pastor David saying that our behavior doesn't matter? No. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God is not out just for you to be good. He wants you to know your identity because he knows that your identity produces behavior. And your identity is more important than God than you trying to be a good person. So Paul writes this letter. So awesome. Watch how he opens it up. He wants them to actually own this. Ephesians 1, 5, beginning. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Now, I'm going to go back to that, but I want you to remember that. Predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So Paul writes this letter. is like, hey, you guys are straight away. You kind of are abandoning your freedom. You're, you're not doing what you said you were going to do. He doesn't go with their behavior. He goes at, hey, you've been adopted. Have you forgotten that? Now, in our church, we have several people who have adopted and are adopting. Adoption is awesome. But there are also many other people who don't really understand adoption. We think, oh, that sounds neat. That's noble. That's good. Good job. But, but see, these people, they lived in a culture of abandonment. Everyone either had been abandoned or knew somebody who had been abandoned. No joke. Here's how this worked. What I'm about to tell you will seem graphic and intense. My intention is, is not to do that. It's not, I'm not going to stretch any truth. But you've got to hear what I'm about to tell you. This is true. Historical fact. In this culture, when a child was born, there was a tradition. The tradition was that the child would be born and someone in the family, usually the mother, perhaps a daughter, would bring that child and lay that child at the feet of the father. That father would look the child over. If that father noticed any, what he would call a defect, a handicap, or something he just didn't like, the father would turn his back and walk away. Now what would happen then means that baby was not welcome in that house. What he was doing by turning his back, he was saying, I know that's my child, but I do not accept or acknowledge that child, and they would abandon the child. So someone in the family would have the responsibility, and I joke you not, to take that child and literally go abandon the child somewhere. There are manuals that have been discovered of doctors, doctors' written manuals to help you determine, based on the size of your child, how productive they might be in the future. And people would take that and own that and say, oh, it looks like my child won't be productive. And it turns back. Those children would end up sometimes at the city dump, literally just laid there, and the family would leave. Sometimes family, they would be a little bit optimistic. They would take that child to that marketplace that I told you where hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people are converging and they would abandon the child there hoping someone would see that child and have have some sort of mercy on that child. And some would take that child. But most often someone who would take that child would raise that child up to either be a work slave or a prostitute. So when Paul writes a letter And starts it off saying, hey, you're not living in freedom. Have you forgotten that you've been adopted? He's speaking to a culture that understands what abandonment feels like. I think our culture knows what abandonment feels like. Some of you, your dad left. He abandoned you. Some of you, your mom abandoned you, left. Disregarded the whole principle and love of raising you. Some of you are like, no, I had a good mom and dad, but some of you have had friends literally turn their backs on you and abandon you. Some of you have showed up to work and learned that you were fired for no good reason and you felt abandoned. In fact, many of us right now walk our lives thinking we're completely alone. Everyone has turned their backs on us. I guarantee you this, everyone has faced that lie from the devil, that lie that says you're alone, no one wants you, no one likes you, good luck. You and I understand abandonment. So I wrote this, and I hope this is helpful. Your most defining moment shouldn't be who threw you out. It should be who took you in. So some of you are wondering, David, how do I live this freedom out? When my behavior is not perfect and, and I make some, listen, when you find yourself lost or feeling abandoned, understand, put your focus on who's taking you in. That's what Paul's trying to get across in this letter, not just to the church in Ephesus, but to the church of Fountain Springs. Saying if you feel abandoned, own the adoption, not the abandonment. Press in and identify with The adoption, and many of us as Christians choose not to identify with the adoption part. We forget. We forget that when we've got bad behavior, we're like, oh, I must not be adopted anymore. And God's like, yeah, you are. You're still my child. In this adoption studying, I was doing a a story, came across that I want to share with you. This is profound to me. There's a boy in an orphanage. This boy was there from, from birth. He had been taken to the orphanage because he was born with a mental handicap. He was dropped off at an orphanage. And, and when, when parents or people would come to adopt children, he would often get passed over. A lot of times when we go to adopt, we look for kind, you know, what, what's easiest and, and what, what's easiest for me. And, and oftentimes, kids like that will get completely looked over. This kid grew up in this orphanage. At the age of nine, He began to internalize all of the abandonment and rejection. Not only did he feel rejected and abandoned by his birth mom and dad, but all those parents that had come in to adopt his friends, he was recognizing that and began to ask this question of the workers, why doesn't anybody want me? He struggled putting thoughts together. Mentally, things were just a challenge. His ability to understand, to comprehend, to speak, they were just a challenge for him. But he was identifying with this abandoned man, and he felt abandoned. One day, no joke, real life, a family called the orphanage and said, hey, is that one boy there? That's all they had to say. Is that one boy there? Everyone knew what was talked about and what was going on. And they said, yeah, he is. And they said, we want to adopt him. They would already adopted a child from the orphanage, but they felt compelled, led by God, to actually go adopt. So they said, hey, hey, but we want a new name for our new son. We, we want you to tell him his new name. He, he had a cultural name that, that actually was pretty difficult to understand, so we want to change your name. The name was Anson Josiah. So, so, so the, the folks of the orphanage went and told this boy, this nine-year-old boy, hey, hey, you've been adopted. I mean, can you imagine his face? I imagine his whole expression changed, and they said, hey, they've got a new name for you. His face brightened up, and I was curious, like, "What, what is it? What is it? And they said, it's Anson Josiah. And this kid that struggled putting things together mentally quickly said, oh, my new name is A.J. And so, listen, the orphanage tells this story. He started going around to everybody saying, hey, my name's A.J., And then he would go around to other people. Hey, hey, my name's, my name's AJ. And he would go around to other folks. People that would just show up at the orphanage looking for other kids. Like, hey, my name's AJ. And he began, and they said his whole countenance shifted, changed. This boy went from abandoned, destitute, mentally depressed. He was just, it was horrible. And he, everything changed. The moment he understood his new identity, when you believe in Jesus as your personal savior, You may not feel it emotionally or physically, but you are granted a new identity. You are now then saw as free, no longer a slave to the decisions you've made in your past, present, or future. You're completely free, adopted into the family of God. It's an incredible moment that we often forget because we're so bent on perfect behavior. We teach perfect behavior. So hopefully this resonates with you and sinks in. The devil wants you to own your abandonment. God wants you to own your adoption. Own the adoption part. Now Paul doesn't finish with just saying, hey, you're adopted. As a reminder saying, hey, I know, I know you don't feel free and you're making some decisions you shouldn't, so remember your identity and he deals with the adoption. He speaks to another identity. Listen to this. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, gospel means good news, the good news of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. I'll go back to that. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who who are God's possession, for the, to the praise of his glory. You, you are marked with him, in him, with a seal. Marked with a seal. Now, most of us remember this, at least you've seen a movie about it, where someone would finish a letter, put the letter inside the envelope, seal it up and put wax on the tip of it and, and, and take a ring or a stamp and mark who was actually doing that letter. Most of us still don't do that. If you still do that, that's kind of cool. And so most of us just don't do that anymore. Most of us don't mail letters, don't send any type of other stuff, and, and, and pull out the wax, drip the wax on there, and be like, oh, good, my family ring, stamp, they'll know who it is. You didn't have to put your name and address on the front of the letter. They just knew by the seal. Well, well you and I, we just don't do that anymore. So when we read something like, oh, you've, you've been marked with the seal, you have the Holy Spirit in you when you believe in Jesus, and you're made free, you're like, marked with a seal. <clears throat> okay. It's neat. But when the, Paul was not just writing to people who sealed letters with wax. He was also writing to people who marked with a seal their animals. Now I'm talking South Dakota terminology, right? Where they would brand their animals with their mark saying, that's my cow. That's my sheep, right? And that's how they would do it. So so they perked up they're like, oh, I understand that. I've been marked, and some of us can understand that. But markings and seals weren't reserved just for letters and animals. There's a whole other crew that when Paul would have said, you've been marked with a seal, they all would have tilted their heads and gone like, wow. It was the slaves. The slaves that had had tattoos on their necks marking their owner. Now, now I'm really talking South Dakota terminology. Tattoos? Like, okay, I got it. So listen to this. Paul's trying to help you and I understand. Hey, you want to be free again? You kind of got off on the wrong track. He didn't go at behavior modification. He says, do you know who you are? Do you know who has claimed you who says they are mine? It's God. When you believe in Jesus as your Savior, When you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. You are adopted and you are marked. And God claims you. Now, when you walk life out and you walk through moments where you don't feel free. I mean, I got days like that. Where I'm embarrassed of how I behave. And I don't feel like, yay, I feel so good. Like, I just have been great with God. When you don't feel free, perhaps now you can walk back to not your behavior, but walk back to your identity. Do not forget your identity. Walk in your identity. Your freedom is found in your identity. So I got to ask you a question. Where do you find your identity? If I were to press in, do you find your identity as a child of God? Or are you trying to earn your way back to being free? You have probably done things that you don't want to tell other people. You have probably thought things that you're ashamed of or hope that no one finds out. But I gotta tell you, your behavior is not your way back to freedom. It's owning your identity. So where do you find it? So There's a story that we came across. I wanna show it to you. It's a story of of a woman who found her identity in God. And so, I want you to watch Michelle's story as she creatively shares with us where her identity is found. Take a look.
1: There was a little girl who once thought love was something that you earned. Something that came with pain because love hurt. A little girl who fought back tears when mommy refused to make the right choices. A little girl who begged daddy to love her because no one else did. The one who smiled because frowning was unattractive. The little girl who made the best grades so someone would take notice. Kept quiet when her feelings were hurt because no one likes a crybaby. How could someone love her if she complained and didn't do what everyone asked of her? She belonged to them because she needed them to love her. Then she found a guide to love her, a guide to hurt her so much that it had to be love, right? This is what love does. Pain is what love is. She was a little girl who kept all her feelings inside because no one had time to listen the little girl that hid inside herself and pretended to be everyone but who she was because everyone was better than me. Me, the little girl with no one to love her. The little girl who was gullible and could be used up at any time by anybody who wanted to use her. I was a little girl who only cried in her bed because the pillows were the only ones who had time because mommy never learned how to be mommy and daddy forgot what daddy means to a little girl and the guy who loved me so much he hurt me only wanted to use me for what I could do for him. And here I stand in all my mess, this pile of gunk of past distress, this mud and grime that I couldn't let go because back then I couldn't say no, All along, I didn't realize there was a God who heard my cries, who would wipe away each stupid lie. Useless, shameful, unloved, unclean. He came down in my mud for me. He stooped beside me and wiped my tears, cleansed my soul, erased my fears. He took my dirt, my grime, my shame, and gave me life through his holy name. My God, my savior, my Lord, my friend. He took me from them and made me his. I am his shameless blameless set free redeemed he loves me in all my grime my dirt my funk he picked me up called my name said my life was gonna change that i would never be the same i had no reason to be ashamed no longer should i carry the blame because he loves me he would take my shame my past my mess and lay those dirty souls to rest because i am his daughter his creation his precious child no longer should i be defiled this world is not my home at all my life was changed when i heard his call my god i am grateful for all that you are and as i lay my life down to you i ask that you help me show all the little girls like me who thought real love could never be who cry themselves to sleep at night i pray they too will see your life and they will see just like i do that everything they're looking for, it all lies in you.